Currency Press is Australia's foremost publisher of the performing arts. We've been sharing Australian stories since 1971, and we've always believed in theatre that raises more questions than answers, which is why we're sitting down with some of the country's most respected playwrights and talking to them about their work. Each month, we look at one play over 30 minutes with insights straight from the source. Hello, I'm Toby Leon, and this is Not In Print. Angela Betsian is a multi-award-winning writer and a founding member of independent theatre company Real TV. She is currently the Patrick White Fellow at Sydney Theatre Company and developing new plays for them as well as Melbourne Theatre Company and Belvoir. Angela's play, Children of the Black Skirt, toured Australian schools for three years and won the 2005 Drama Victoria Award for Best Performance by a Theatre Company for Secondary Schools. Another work, War Crimes won the 2012 Kit Denton Fellowship and the Queensland Literary Award for Playwriting. The play that we're here to talk about today, Hoods, won the Augie Award for Theatre for Young Audiences in 2007 and the Richard Werrett Award for Theatre for Young Audiences in the same year. Each night, two hoods ride a train to a wrecking yard on the outskirts of the city. Here, in this cemetery of stories, they are storytellers, with the power to fast-forward, pause, and rewind. Tonight, they tell the story of three kids left in a car. Rewind. It's Friday, KFC night, and the last day of school before Christmas. Kyle and Jesse and baby brother Troy are waiting in the car for their mum. As night approaches, the car park takes on a dark and sinister aspect, filled with strange and familiar characters. The shopping centre closes, but mum still hasn't returned, and the baby won't stop crying. Exploring issues of poverty and family violence, Hoods is a suburban tale of survival and solidarity against the odds. Angela, welcome to Not In Print. Thank you. Now, before we start drilling down into the nuts and bolts of hoods, let's talk about Real TV. How would you describe Real TV to someone that knew nothing about it? Mm. Real TV is an independent uh, creative team, probably more than a company, and we formed in the year 2000, so 15 years ago. And we're made up of myself, the playwright, um, Letitia Caceres, the director and composer, Pete Goodwin. And we formed our company because we really believed in creating theatre that was politically engaged and, and really exciting. And uh, that's what we've been doing for the last, over, over the last decade or so. And I wanted to read a quote that outlines the mission of Real TV. You once said that the mission of Real TV is to tell the stories of the underclass, stories which appear in a few second slots on the six o'clock news. Now, besides the fact that these stories aren't told often enough, what draws you to them? I've had such a history of writing plays based on real events and I think what draws me to these stories is their power. I think that in the in the theatre they have real currency. If an audience recognises a story as being real in some way, there's a kind of an electricity that develops uh, and I've kind of witnessed that and I think that recognition is really powerful. There's a you know a huge tradition of creating theatre, which is um, of, it's often referred to as living newspaper. So it was practiced in the late 1800s in Russia, 
by troops of actors who would communicate the news to uh, an illiterate population. Uh, so it was fairly a pragmatic tool in that context, but it was later practiced um, by the Federal Theatre Project during the Great Depression in America. And plays were created like newspaper production houses, and there, there were these mammoth productions that would would communicate the the day's events uh, to to the public. And looking now um, at the state of twenty first century uh, political theatre, Letitia Caceres actually said that the job of the political theatre maker now is to re-engage the audience's imagination in order to question and think about what kind of future that they want to live in. How have you both tried to do that with your work? I think the theatre that we create is very much about uh, encouraging audiences to ask questions and to be critical citizens, I suppose. I think often when people think about political theatre, they often think about uh, a didactic theatre and they they worry that they'll be um, belted over the head with an idea or a political agenda, an ideology, and usually that's the playwright's ideology. And I think as Real TV, what we've attempted to do is create a theatre that asks questions about how how our world might be different. And that's, I think, all you can do as a political theatre maker. Um, and really, theatre is a forum for debate uh, and, and characters are the embodiment of that debate. So do you react to things as they happen or do you kind of pick something that you actually want to focus on and kind of unpack it? How, how do you make decisions about what you produce? It varies from project to project. Sometimes I'm, att- I'm really attracted by the potency of a particular news story, but I'm not interested in uh, in taking the real facts of that story and writing a verbatim piece or a, a, a piece based on research, on real research. I always fictionalise the drama uh, to distance it as much as possible from that real event. So reality is just a springboard? That's right, yes. And you've also said that your own personal approach to creating political drama is eclectic, irreverent, and that you're prepared to beg, borrow, and steal from the canon of political theatre and popular media to create a drama that works, a drama that's both entertaining and provocative. How do you strike the right balance between being entertaining and provocative? It's difficult. It's a very difficult, fine line, I think. I mean, my goal is always to create a theatre that's that's not boring. And I think when you do write plays for young audiences, you're highly conscious of being boring. Many of our plays have toured into schools, into classrooms and gymnasiums, and it's often very difficult to hold the attention of that audience on a Friday afternoon. And so I'm highly conscious of cutting out those boring bits. But the, the fine line is, you know, you want to create something that's very powerful and provocative, that makes people uncomfortable, that forces them to the edge of their seats. And, you know, I often wonder, I think some theatre makers, particularly young ones, perhaps pride themselves on audience walkouts. So, you know, if people walk out of their show, they feel that's a, a sort of a sign of success, that they're really cutting edge and they're, you know, breaking boundaries. And, I, you know, I can recognise that, that tendency in my, my earlier years. And I think I've learnt from that. I want to create work that's actually full of hope. I think that's a true political theatre where we see the possibilities of our future. On the back cover of the book, the blurb says that Hoods is a contemporary tale of Hansel and Gretel, which is one of the Grimm's brothers' darkest tales. Why Hansel and Gretel? 
I love that fairy tale. I think it's it's it is the best fairy tale. It's it's so rich and so dark. It's it was always my favorite fairy tale growing up. And I think the one of the reasons I'm attracted to it is is the solidarity of the sibling relationship uh, in that story. You know, Hansel and Gretel really stick together and they support each other and and help each other and I think that's that's beautiful. You know, it's the candy house which really fires up the imagination when you're a child. As a fairy tale, I think it's problematic in terms of its portrayal of women and of mothers, as are many of the Grimm's fairy tales, as are many folk tales. However, I think what I wanted to do with Hoods was to kind of re-envisage that fairy tale and, and place it in the contemporary context. And the portrayal of mothering was a very important one in the play. I think the other attraction to Hansel and Gretel is this, at its core, the story is about child abandonment and the lost child in the wilderness. And that's very much a feature of Australian art, of Australian literature, the lost child in the landscape. And there's an academic writer called Peter Pierce who who believes that the lost child in the landscape is very much an articulation of our fears and anxieties as colonisers of this country. Uh, and so I've always been fascinated with that theory and lost children are present in almost all of my plays. So that's, I guess, why I was attracted to Hansel and Gretel as a tale. And looking at everything that we've just discussed, can you explain Brecht's idea of epic theatre and why it had such an influence on Hood specifically? Gosh, do we have all day? <laughs> <laughs> it's it's big. I think, just firstly, I think that Brecht's theories are are quite overwhelming, particularly if you're a student of drama or a teacher of drama. They can seem kind of quite complex and quite dusty, I suppose. And I've recently um, been very drawn to uh, Michael Gow's latest play, Once in Royal David City, and I think anyone who's kind of interested in in Brecht's theories should should take a look at that play because it's a, it's a play about uh, a middle-aged man, a theatre director whose mother is dying. And as this man grapples with his mother's mortality, his own mortality, he's also grappling with the power of theatre and the impact of Brecht and Brecht's theories on his life and his art. And there's this wonderful speech in it where he talks about, he, he refutes this idea that Brecht was all about audiences not feeling for characters. He says that's garbage, that's rubbish, you've been told a lie. And and it's true, Brecht's, Brecht's work, Brecht's epic theatre is incredibly powerful, but it's also incredibly provocative in terms of the intellect as well. I think my interest, particularly in terms of Brecht's theory is, and I'm going to pronounce it incorrectly, is the Verfremdungseffekt, which is uh, the alienation effect. This idea that by turning something slightly, we see it anew. We see it in a new, fresh and unfamiliar way. And so there are a range of techniques for doing that. And I've attempted to employ those techniques in, in hoods. Some of those techniques in hoods include the transformation of character, uh, the heightened language and the strangeness of the situation. Yeah, well, let's talk about the hoods because mm. the opening lines position them in this world, but they also tell us that they exist outside it as well. Mm. And I'd like to read them. Two hoods, a suburban train station. Above us, the constellations spin and burn. No tickets, for we are ghosts of past and present and future. 
We sew the sutures of time. We are the game players, controllers of fast forward, pause and rewind. So we know they're ghosts, but they're not angry phantoms. They're not freaky poltergeists. And we know they're game players, but they don't toy with people either. Who are the hoods, or should I ask, what are they? That's a very popular question. We, When we toured this play into schools during question and answer sessions, that would be one of the most common questions. Who are the hoods? Uh, I would always throw the question back at, back at the students, and I'd say, well, well, who do you think they are? And one of the most popular theories was that they are actually Kyle and Jesse grown up. And that's a fairly bleak interpretation, I think, of of those characters because it gives a sense that potentially Kyle and Jesse didn't make it to to Nan's house, that they they did get lost in some way, that they are ghosts. As a as a playwright, I don't I'm not I'm not very interested in in saying, you know, in, in revealing my feelings about who they are. I can say that uh, certainly, you know, as ghosts of past, present and future, one of the inspirations for these characters were, were the, the spirits in Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol. So they kind of work in the same way within this story. There's also a sense, I think, in the play that when they arrive at the car wrecking yard, each night, they might tell a different story. So they happen to find this particular car with these particular objects that tell a particular story. But on the next night, they might find a, a very different car and a very different story. So they're they're quite nebulous kind of ca- kinds of characters. They almost seem like conduits in a way, don't That's they? That's right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And how do you think the image of hoods actually captures their essence? I was really interested, at the time that I was writing this play, there was a lot of press about uh, young people wearing hoods in public places and a call to ban hoods because essentially a hood is a mask. It's a disguise. And I think many young people, many people of all ages, use hoods as as a cloak. And it's not not for criminal purposes necessarily at all. It's actually to to hide themselves from the world in some way. And there's Feeling lots of reasons for that. a little bit depressed that. or something, right? Exactly, exactly. So I liked the idea of these these hooded spirit-like characters that had no real face. That were faceless. That could become anything in our imaginations in our minds Mm. the language of the hoods is so rich with imagery i mean it's poetry i wonder if you gave the hoods poetic language to distinguish them as being outside the usual laws of space and time was that a device that you used yeah absolutely i i really wanted to differentiate the hoods characters from kyle and jesse and so it was really important that they adopted a heightened a language to to give them that sense of power and uh, and status and, and place them in, a, in another time, I and, suppose. And kind of to connect them to poets of the ages. I mean, there's a kind yeah. of sense of, of beat poetry Absolutely. in there. And there's also a sense of, um, of Homer's Odyssey at certain points in there for me sure. as well. So it kind of connects to a whole lineage, doesn't it? Yeah, they, they, they very much connect. And, you know, when I was researching the play, I was uh, listening uh, to a lot of hip hop, a lot of rap, uh, a lot of spoken word. And, you know, there's some gorgeous stuff out there. And I, I think I think young people are often, their language is often quite simplified and, and ordinary and banal in terms of its portrayal in, in art, in theatre or on film. And I, I think part of this, this alienation effect, this, this 
trying to estrange these characters in some way. The language really served that. You know, and I also started to look at other forms of uh, expressions of culture, of, of young people's culture. And graffiti is another a, a, a form of communication. It's another language that is incredibly sophisticated and, and meaningful. And I think it's, it's hugely misunderstood. Now, there's obviously a large cast of characters that the hoods inhabit throughout the performance. And the production notes actually state that the word morph is used throughout the text to describe the actor's rapid vocal and physical transformation from one character to the next. Why did you decide that this work could be, or perhaps should be, performed by just two actors? I mean, it wasn't just about production budgets, was it? No, it wasn't, although that was a factor. (laughs) It's always a factor, I'm afraid. Firstly, there's a number of reasons why I chose to tell this story using two actors. Firstly, I, I love watching actors transform in front of our eyes. I think it's incredibly theatrical and incredibly exciting. And I had the great fortune of working with actors who were incredible at transformation. And I think they really, in terms of my early writing practice, inspired my love of transformation and of morphing, as I like to like to call it. And, you know, often I would, I would wonder whether or not I'd write a scene and I'd have a char- an actor transforming from one character to the next in, in rapid succession. So there's a scene in Hoods where uh, the mum is in the Kmart and she's trying to pay for the shoes, the Dunlop volleys that she buys for her son Kyle. And the actor has to transform from mum back to Jesse to mum in quick succession. And as I was writing this particular scene, I remember turning to the actor and saying, Jody, do you think that you'll be able to do that? And she had a read of it and she said, yeah, fine, I'll be able to do that. So she assured me that, that it was possible. So I think actors can do that really um, for writers. They can, they can inspire you to explore uh, the potential of, of performance. I think it's also really powerful. Transformation is a really powerful mode because I'm, I'm interested in the effect of children enrolling as adult characters. I think it's quite politically powerful for Jesse and Kyle to play the role of their teachers because there's a kind of, there's a quotation that takes place and there's a kind of cheekiness, uh, irreverence in that, that act of, of enrolment that I think is really powerful. Uh, and I, I, I like to kind of see that, see that working theatrically. Hmm. Now, while there's a large range of characters in the show, Kyle and Jesse are obviously the main two. They're left alone for the night after mum leaves him in the car, wandering off to who knows where, really. And you've been quoted as saying that they're not based on particular people, but rather on a range of real stories that you encountered about kids being left in cars, left to fend for themselves, just abandoned. And I'd like to hear about some of the commonalities that you saw between these stories. Yes, I at the time of writing the earliest incarnation of Hoods, uh, there were a, a series of stories uh, in the newspaper about children being left in cars for hours at a time. And there was one story in particular where it happened in Brisbane and a woman had left her young child in a car, a hot car, and the child had died. And that was the key inspiration for this play. But there was a series of incidents and I think... One of the commonalities of all of these real events was the way that the media portrayed the parent, but particularly the mother, in these situations. 
And of course, your parents are responsible for their children, but it made me wonder who else is responsible for these children and to cast the net further and to to ask, you know, are teachers responsible, are friends responsible, are uncles, are grandparents, are strangers responsible for these children as what well as think? mothers? Absolutely. I think, you know, it's the old adage that it, it takes a village to raise a child. I think that's absolutely true. And I think particularly in our society, we don't do that very well. We actually, we often raise our children in quite isolated family units, nuclear units. And when things go wrong, when times get tough, there's no support mechanism. So I think, you know, ultimately uh, in the play, I'm asking that question of how do we support this mother to to support her children. And we can't have a one-size-fits-all sort of policy or attitude, I suppose. That's right, yeah. Now, you've also been quoted as saying that a significant thematic concern in Hoods is the cyclical nature of violence, a concept drawn from extensive research into domestic violence and also um, its impact on the behaviour and development of children. How did you build the characters of Kyle and Jesse and make sure that they actually felt like flesh and blood and just not a a pile of animated statistics? Mm. It's a difficult balance, I think. Uh, Many of my plays are are very heavily researched. And it's actually surprising how in that process of research, to what extent flesh and blood begins to to form, I guess, around characters. In speaking to child protection workers, in speaking to teachers, they will tell you the statistics um, around you know, the cycles of violence and the presence of violence in homes in Australia. But they will also tell you stories uh, about their encounters with young people under strict confidence, obviously. And I I think I was also, I also draw from uh, my experience of working with young people in schools on uh, workshops and residencies. I'm always all ears as to the experiences of young people in in various uh, environments. And so all of those collective experiences and stories and narratives build to form characters. I think even to a, to a small extent, thank goodness I have not experienced the experiences of Kyle and Jesse, but I did even draw on my relationship with my brother who's older than me and certainly the antagonism of that relationship and I think the idealisation of, of Jesse for Kyle was certainly present in my relationship with my brother. So I think as a playwright you, you draw from everything, whatever you can, to, to create a character that's real and feels authentic. Mm, another quote from you that I'd like to read. In Hood's The Form, you say, is as important as the content to the creation of meaning. It's constructed in such a way as to engage audiences in an ongoing discourse about the themes and issues in the play and to encourage further interaction beyond the performance. How can the form of a play achieve that end? That's what's so exciting about theatre. Theatre is form. It's an experimentation with form, and the form in many ways should really contribute to the meaning as much as the content. Uh, with Hoods, it was written as a kind of chronological narrative that had a very negative ending. And I think my experience of presenting that to an audience told me that there was another way of telling this story that was more provocative and that was more powerful. And so I started to experiment with this idea of uh, 
kind of a choose your own adventure model or a video game model where the characters of the hoods really had the remote control on this narrative and could stop, start, replay and pause whenever um, they chose. And I thought, gosh, wouldn't, wouldn't it be great if life was like that? And I guess it's borrowing from Auguste Boal's playback theatre model where audiences are invited to, to, to stop the action in particular scenarios and uh, try to figure out a, a different way out of a particular situation. And I, I find that a really provocative form particularly for this story, because I wanted to invite the young audience to ask the question, how might this be different? What needs to happen in order for these characters uh, to, to, to be saved from this situation or to save themselves from this situation? Mm, and talking about that, heading towards the ending of the actual play, you've also been quoted as saying that there's no real ending to Hoods. Each outcome that the audience actually projects onto the story is a real possibility. What effect are we hoping to achieve by offering the audience that multiplicity? I think the effect I was hoping to achieve is that anything's possible, that through particular choices and particular actions... Uh, tragedy can be averted. And when we watch Hoods, we can take the tragic road with this play or we can take the hopeful road with it. And essentially it's the responsibility of a number of characters within that world to ensure a happy ending. And did the form that you went towards after the initial incarnation of this play, did it lend itself to that as well? Did it actually help you to get to the point where you realised that it needed to be, like life, endless possibilities? I think it did. I think it did. And I think because there is no real resolution in the play, audiences are, are always asking questions about that play. So students are studying it and there's a, it's, it's, it's a debate about what, what actually is the true ending. And I think that's really positive, where there's an ongoing discussion about a text. It really stimulates the intellect. There may be no conclusive ending, but if people could take away one thing from the play after seeing it or reading it, what would you like that to be? You know, I think that the play leaves us with a sense that these characters, despite their fragility, are uh, surprisingly resilient and surprisingly capable. And I think that's really important that we view children in that light, that yes, they are vulnerable and they need to be protected, but they're also incredibly, uh, they're incredible survivors. But I also want people to be aware of how responsible we all are for uh, the lives of vulnerable children in our community. Angela, thank you so much for coming to talk to me about your play. No worries. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Not In Print. I hope you've enjoyed hearing more about this great Australian play. And if you have any comments or questions about this episode or any other episode, we'd love to hear from you. Just search for Currency Press on Facebook or Twitter and drop us a line. This episode was produced by Currency Press with the generous assistance of the Department of Performance Studies and the School of Letters, Art and Media at Sydney University.